Now, if you've been with us through the month of June, you know we are currently in a series that we've entitled, I Have Questions. Through the month of May, we asked all that were attending to submit any questions that they had about faith or morality or life. And through the months of June and July, I'm trying to address as many of those questions as possible. Now, it's probable I'm not going to be able to get to every single one of them, but I'm trying to address as many of them as I can. In fact, today, we're going to try to tackle uh, quite a few questions similar in focus in a way that I, I hope will be beneficial for you. But given, again, the number of questions I'm going to attempt to address this morning, can I just pray for us? Because honestly, my desire is for God to help us gain a wisdom. This isn't so much about my ideas. I'm wanting us to find insight from the Bible, uh, from God's Word, in a way that will give us some perspective. And so let me voice a prayer for us as we jump into the questions for the day. Father, I'm grateful, first of all, to be a part of our congregation, to share in what you're doing. And I'm thankful for those that were willing and honest enough just to ask questions that have been on their mind. And our request of you is that you would help us to find answers from the Bible, that we will gain a, an insight that's not based on our own perspective, but that you'll turn the light on in a way that we can see clearly. I ask that because I know today's topics really affect us, and I, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts accordingly. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, there are several questions I want us to consider, so let's go ahead and, and get to that. The first question sets the tone for what will be, I guess, the focus overall. Uh, the way I would express it is this. What happens after a person dies? Now, the person who submitted the question worded it this way. What happens to us as Christians after we die? I wanted to kind of broaden that slightly, and let's just ask the relevant question. What happens to any person after he or she dies? Now, through the course of today's sermon, what I'm wanting to do is to raise the question, and then I'll offer to you a, a summary statement that I think characterizes what you'll find in the various passages of Scripture. To this question, I would say this, which if you really want to understand what the Bible teaches, you probably need to realize that the Bible says a person will experience either blessing or torment. That as you read through the Bible, particularly the New Testament, you'll discover that when a person dies, that individual will experience either blessing or torment. Now maybe even this summary statement leaves some of us uncomfortable. What? It's possible that a person will actually suffer? Well, you should know that Jesus is the one that emphasizes these spiritual realities. There's a parable in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. It's sometimes referred to as the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, where Jesus portrays through the story two individuals. One dies and enters into a place of blessing, 
Abraham's side. It's a Hebraic way of describing blessing. And the other dies and is immediately placed in a condition of torment, suffering. Now, what's fascinating about this story, when Jesus shared it with his first century hearers, they would have been astonished by who reached which destination. Their presumption was, if a person was wealthy, that that was a sign of God's blessing, and that that individual would then automatically enter into a greater blessing after they die. But when you look at the story, Jesus describes that it's the rich man who lived a very self-centered life that actually found himself in a condition of judgment or suffering, crying out for relief. It was the poor man who Jesus identifies as Lazarus, which is a, just kind of an interesting tidbit. All of the other parables Jesus shares, he never gives a person a name. But in this particular parable, he refers to the poor man by the name of Lazarus, which, if you understand the meaning of the name, actually means God is our help. That it's the person who understood their need for God, the help of God, that finds himself now after dying in a place of blessing. Now, I just emphasize this with you because Jesus is the one that teaches this basic concept that when a person dies, they will either enter into blessing or torment. Jesus talks more about what we would refer to as hell than he does heaven. So from Jesus' point of view, he's very concerned about individuals recognizing the possibility of what occurs after a person dies. Now, let me maybe describe it ever so slightly different. Uh, think of it this way. When a person dies, that person will either dwell with God, see, that's the place of blessing, or be cast from him, cast into torment, or said differently, cast into judgment. That upon a person's death, that represents the two potential outcomes. You get to enter into the dwelling with God, or you don't. And if you're cast from God, then the language that Jesus uses is you're cast into outer darkness, where there's mourning and gnashing of teeth. It's a language that's intentionally provocative. Jesus is trying to help every person understand the seriousness of preparing themselves for death. They will either experience blessing, torment, they will either dwell with God or be cast away from him. Which, just to pause, raises a different question. Someone asked, is God omnipotent? Now, that's the theological term that means, is God everywhere? And if he is everywhere, does that mean that he's in hell? In the place of judgment. I would say to you, as I understand what the Bible would teach, that I'm convinced God is everywhere. And though scripture at times describes the place of torment as being cast from God's presence, what really is being highlighted there is you're cast from the benefit of God's presence. But as God is eternal and omnipresent, and he is certainly everywhere, what 
is happening in hell is the person is actually experiencing the wrath of God. They're not benefiting from the presence of God. So if you were to ask me, is God technically speaking in hell? Yes, he is, but it's not to the benefit of the person. That person is suffering the consequences of their sin against the eternal God. Now, now this kind of underscores, well, my goodness, then I don't want to be in that condition. <laughs> I don't want anybody I know to be in that condition. So the, what's the remedy to this? If Jesus is the one that describes these two realities, then what do I do to avoid being cast into judgment? Well, let me point you to an episode in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's, it's that scene that should move all of our hearts where Jesus himself is crucified. And there, from the cross, Jesus hears a sinner's cry. This is, a, I think, a, a revealing passage when we think about judgment and how does a person potentially escape it. I want to read this passage for you. I didn't have time to read uh, the parable of Lazarus. You can look at that later on your own. But listen to what is described in Luke 23, beginning in verse 39. Jesus has been crucified. To the right of him, there's a criminal. To the left of him, there's a condemned criminal. Verse 39 reads, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now let's appreciate what's being described here. Two men are dying with Jesus, one to the right, one to the left. One of the condemned criminals is actually mocking Jesus as the religious leaders were doing so earlier in this biblical scene. But the other rebukes the first criminal and says, what are you doing? We're dying because of what we've done. We deserve this. It's a very telling, I think, indication that the second of the criminals referred to here has a full awareness of his own guilt. But then, this is where I think something encouraging happens. Knowing who he was, listen to what he then says to Jesus. He cries out to him, verse 42, and he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He pleads with Jesus. Verse 43, Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot in this exchange that should encourage us. First, there's the picture of a man that lived a horribly sinful life. He's dying because of his actions, and he knows that he is. And yet he cries out to Jesus, recognizing that there's something about Jesus that is different than him. He appeals to Jesus. Maybe at some point he even heard Jesus teach in one of those public settings. But whatever, he knows that Jesus is going to a place, and he asks him, Remember me? Remember me? 
And Jesus' response should lift the heart of every sinner. He says, okay, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice the immediacy of that. It's not something that is later on. Because of his cry to Jesus, his appeal to Jesus, and Jesus' response to him, Jesus guarantees this individual that he's going to enter the place of blessing. He's going to experience blessing as a result of Jesus' response. Well, what about the other criminal? Again, as Jesus would teach us, you either either enter a place of blessing or torment. You either dwell with God or, or cast off into judgment. Now, somebody after the first service stopped me in the hall and said, now, is the judgment experience immediate? I mean, is the torment immediate? I'm convinced that it is. He said, well, well, what about in the book of Revelation where it talks about the lake of fire when ultimately people are cast into the lake of fire? You need to know scripturally that what seems to be portrayed is there's an immediate level of blessing, there's an immediate level of torment or judgment, but both of those realities actually reach a greater culmination at the end. But upon death, a person will come to experience one or the other. I don't know about you, I want to know within my heart that upon my death I'm going to experience blessing. Don't you? So how do we settle that? We've talked about this in various ways over the years, but I mean, how can I know today that when I die that I'm going to escape judgment? Well, last week we read the familiar words of Jesus in John 3.16 when he says what? For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish. Notice, that person will not be cast into judgment. They'll not face the consequence, the rightful consequence of their sin. No, Jesus has saved them from that. And they will have eternal life. And so if this morning you are a little unsettled, you're not clear in your own mind what will happen to you when you die, I would say you need to believe in Jesus and you need to settle that within your own heart because Jesus is the one who provides the way of salvation. And so what happens when a person dies? Jesus would say, blessing, torment, dwell with God, cast into judgment. But let's think positively. All of you have believed in Jesus. And after you die, someone then was, was thinking ahead. And this is the question that they raised. If I can find it here. Will all Christians be rewarded the same in heaven? Expressed differently as they worded it, are all Christians the same in heaven? The issue here is really one of reward. Now, let me be clear. The basis of any person entering into eternity with God is Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. He is the one who delivers us from the judgment for our sin. We need Jesus. Well, once I believe in Jesus, now the question is, is there more? I mean, I, I'm assured that I will be with God. I will dwell with him. 
doesn't the Bible say something about rewards? And if there are future rewards, I mean, do we all have the same rewards? Or are there differences of, of rewards? As I said, what I'd like to do is raise the question and then give you a summary statement that characterizes what the Bible will teach. And here's the, the response that I would give to this question. Rewards, if you look at it in the scriptures, the rewards in heaven will correspond to one's faithfulness on earth. So yes, there are rewards, but the rewards that are described seem to be directly related to how you related to Jesus in terms of following him and serving him and, and, and making your life available to him. That there is apparently some correlation between those things. Let me give you some biblical passages that will give us some perspective on that. First, let me point you to another parable. It's found in Matthew 25. It's referred to as the parable of the talents. How many of you have heard this one? It's a, it's a story where a master distributes talents with three servants. Uh, one, talent one servant receives five, another receives two, and a, a third receives one. And the whole point of this particular teaching story is that the servants are expected to act responsibly with what's placed in their hands. Two of them do and are recognized and rewarded accordingly. One of them does not and is actually cast out into outer darkness. Now, I would just say in passing, that third servant in the story represents not a Christian that lost reward. No, that's describing a person that didn't know Jesus to begin with. If you look at the language of that third servant, it's obvious that he doesn't know the master. And that's exposed, and he is judged accordingly. But the other two servants who knew the master and acted responsibly, they were rewarded. Now, here's the deal. Now, did they receive exactly the same reward? Or was the reward proportionate to their faithfulness? I think, personally, as you look at what the Bible teaches, that the level of reward will be proportionate. That, yes, we will all, because of Jesus, mutually enter in to the life of blessing that is eternity with God, but there does seem to be an indication that Jesus will look at our faithfulness and according to our responses to him, will either bestow reward or withhold reward. Let me give you a couple of passages that will uh, help us to see that. First, listen to what Jesus says in, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. He's describing his return. And he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he, Jesus, will repay each person according to what he has done. And what does that sound like to you? It sounds proportional, doesn't it? That as he assesses us in our lives, there will be a proportional response according to what we have done. The Apostle Paul speaks about this, this as well in the New Testament letter of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, at verse 6, 7, and 8, and 9, he talks about to be, to be absent from the body, speaking of a person who dies, is to be at home with the Lord. 
And so there's a beautiful, reassuring passage that teaches us that upon a believer's death, they immediately enter into the presence of the Lord. They immediately experience blessing. But as he's talking about that, notice what he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I'm sure there's a, a few of us, as you list, are listening to me, they're thinking, hold on here. I thought when I believed in Jesus, I don't have to worry at all about my faithfulness or unfaithfulness. He saved me, so I'm going to heaven. And that's absolutely true. You're going to heaven. You're going to be with God. But you need to realize the Bible teaches, as we've entered into relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is going to assess our faithfulness. Now, look at Paul's wording again. Bring up verse 10 one more time. He says, now we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I think the way to, to approach this is, is this way. In terms of those outside of Jesus, they will be judged according to their sin. And it will not be a good situation. In relationship to those who have believed in Jesus, they will be judged according to their faithfulness. And based on their faithfulness, they will then receive a blessing, a reward that corresponds to that faithfulness. Now, don't get nervous. The believer in Jesus is not going to be judged or assessed concerning their sin. I mean, one of the questions someone asks is, well, you know, will I be forgiven of sins in heaven that I've been, that I repented of in earth? Listen, if you've believed in Jesus, all of your sins have been dealt with, all of them. And so in this heavenly scene, as Jesus would look at our lives, it's not about judging you according to your sin. It's about assessing you with regard to your faithfulness. And that matters to Jesus. And I think Potentially, a person will then receive reward accordingly. Let me give you one more passage that I think points to this understanding. Once more from the Apostle Paul, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to start the reading at verse 11. Paul is going to refer to Christ as a foundation. So again, we come to faith in Jesus. He's the key to all of this. And he's talking in a larger context about ministry in general. But listen to what he says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's always the key. Now, notice, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built um, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, 
though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let me dispel one misguided idea. This is, has nothing to do with purgatory. That's a theological teaching introduced by the Catholic Church that was never revealed in Scripture. It's just a, a misguided teaching. This passage, however, does emphasize that our lives are going to be assessed. And he uses the, the descriptive metaphor of fire. It's going to be tested, so to speak. And based on how you've responded to Jesus in terms of what you've built upon the faith that you have in Jesus, you can build with gold and silver and precious stones and receive reward that your faithfulness will be recognized. In contrast, if you've built upon this faith of Jesus a life that's constructed by wood and straw and perishable things, he says, that's going to be seen too, isn't it? And as it's evaluated, he, now take heart, you're going to be saved. Your, your salvation is not in question. Jesus is the basis of that, but your reward is lost. That's what the apostle is saying, that you have to take into account that the choices that we're making day by day, week by week, month by month, do matter. They don't determine our salvation, but they do influence our reward. You say, well then, Pastor, what does it mean to be faithful? What do you think it means? I think it means day by day you seek to walk in fellowship with God. Love people as Jesus would direct. Serve people as Jesus would enable. That is, day by day, God gives you opportunities. You just live that life in a Christ-honoring way. And you can know as you stand before Jesus, that's going to be tested. And it will be seen for the goodness that it is. And you'll be rewarded accordingly. On the other side of that, you don't want... As a believer in Jesus, to live most of your life ignoring him, doing what you want, the way you want it, and all of the ways that you might pursue. Because the fact is, you will stand before Jesus and there will be an assessment of that. Now, you don't have to fear. Your future destination isn't in jeopardy. But it does matter to the one who saves you. All that said, maybe someone's wondering, well, then what's the reward? Maybe that'll motivate me. I mean, is it a really good one? I think Scripture is intentionally vague about the rewards so that we don't become maybe selfish and even fleshly in what would motivate us. Now, there are references to crowns maybe as a part of the reward. I think based on what Jesus teaches in some of the parables, it may be greater opportunity or responsibility that corresponds to your faithfulness to Jesus. I came across one theologian that says it, it may affect the degree or the capacity of joy in one's life. Maybe that's going to be the effect. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. I thought heaven's going to be equally fulfilling. Well, think of it this way, and this is the illustration that this person used. Again, you can have a, a gallon jug or a pint glass, and if you're faithful, you're going to get the gallon jug and you're going to have all that much capacity for joy. If you're not quite so serious about it in your faithfulness, then maybe you just get uh, an espresso cup. Um, but the issue being, 
our choices matter in relationship to the reward. I don't have to fear judgment as a believer in Jesus Christ. But I need to take seriously, don't I? How I live my life of faith. Because Jesus will look at my life at some future point and assess that in regard to my life. Well, one more question before we close. And I think it fits all of the other discussions. Will we as the church be in heaven in all its glory? Or will we be on the earth as the Jews will be? Will we have a choice? Now let me say, again, I don't know who submitted the question. I think you may be a little misguided in understanding the future destination of the Jews. Um, Maybe you're thinking about what's described in Revelation 20 during the millennial reign. And and I know there are some theological thoughts that say the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, come to fully experience all of the prophecies of old during the millennial reign, and they get to be there, and those Gentiles who know Jesus, they get to go to heaven. I think that's a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. I think the Bible teaches instead that heaven, as we understand it, is in an ultimate destination for all of the people of faith. It's one and the same. And the way that I would summarize it is this. Heaven is ultimately realized when God makes his dwelling with man. I've already said that when a believer dies, they go where? They enter a place of blessing because of Jesus. They actually go to dwell in the realm of God because of Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. But here's the thing. If you've read the book of Revelation, you know Jesus is coming back gloriously, dramatically. And he's going to usher forward a culminating event. And what is he he going to do? Well, envision it like this. When God created the earth as we know it, he created the realm of man. Okay? It was good. It was beautiful. It was unaffected by sin. And God, he manifested his presence fully in the realm of God. Well, because of sin, the realm of man became broken and dysfunctional and distorted. You can read that out of Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, and you certainly read it through the rest of Scripture, and we see it every day played out in our everyday lives, the dysfunction of the creation around us. Well, here's the thing. The Bible says that a day will come following Jesus' return where God will usher about a transformation. The earth that we know will be gloriously restored and there will be a convergence. The realm of man and the realm of God will no longer be two realities, but one. That God himself will now dwell with us. Now, a slightly different thought in terms of, okay, I'm going to God's realm. No, this is something even more glorious. And listen to how it's portrayed in the book of Revelation chapter 21. Pay attention to the language because it helps us understand the significance of the event. The apostle John is describing it in verse 1. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's referring to the restored earth as 
as we would understand it. For the first, in the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, the voice of God, obviously, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. There's a lot that's mysterious in this scene, and a lot could be said. But the main point, as I understand it, is this. Where there has been, since the creation of the earth, these two realms, spiritually speaking... On that day, the two will become one. When we speak of heaven more times than not, this is what we're thinking about. And it's a future event that Jesus himself will usher forward. It will be a glorious reality that will establish redeemed mankind in such a way that we will live life even as... God pronounced without tears and pain and suffering dysfunction. Now, that doesn't detract from what those who preceded us in death are experiencing already. Uh, You know, I'm convinced that if you're dwelling where God is, that those same descriptors are in play. But what God is helping us to understand, as good as dwelling with God will be there's a coming day where God's going to establish this new reality and he will dwell with us never to be interrupted again. Beautiful scene. Deliberately intended to be a stirring scene that causes us to look toward that future with an expectation. Now, maybe as I've covered the questions that have been submitted, I've only caused other questions, and I'll concede that. And I would say, if I've, if I've said something that's actually raised a different question, would you just email me or call me? Let's just talk over a cup of coffee even, and I'll try to give you maybe a better understanding. Or, and I'll be quick to admit at many points, I, there, are, there are many things I don't know. I, I, I try to bring together pieces of a puzzle, but... God has deliberately, I think, left some pieces out of place to allow us to have this sense of expectation and mystery that is before us. But the heart of today's lesson really goes back to that that very first question, doesn't it? Though I may not know definitively everything with regard to what the future eternal realities will be, I do know this, that upon death, a person will experience either blessing torment. And so where I posed the question initially, just in a general way, let's bring it closer to home. What will happen after I die? How would you answer that? 
What will happen to you after you die? I was at a funeral service yesterday. I'll be at a funeral service this coming Friday. Death is a reality. Do you know in your heart what will happen to you? Jesus would want us to know. Do you know? I remind you of Jesus' reassuring words. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If this Sunday morning that has still been unresolved with you, isn't it time for you to believe, for you to trust in him? Next week, I'm going to look at the question between free will and the sovereignty of God. Several people were asking questions about that. I'm convinced you have a choice that needs to be made today. Will you believe in him? Let me pray for us. Dear God, I come to you in Jesus' name asking that you would speak to our hearts, appeal to our hearts in ways that we need to respond. For the person who doesn't yet know whether or not they will experience blessing in death, I pray that you would move them to trust in Jesus Christ today, to believe in him, as honestly as they know how, to believe in him. For the believer in Jesus who realized maybe for the first time in a while that Jesus cares about our daily actions, that there is going to be an assessment of what we do or do not do, God, I just pray that you would bring us back to a point of active faith, uh, that we would seek to live out our faith in ways that would result in reward and encouragement from you. So, Lord, wherever we are in the midst of this, I just pray you appeal to our hearts, help us to respond appropriately. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.